Hi everyone, it's Kate and Trapper, and we are sitting in 2021, and this is actually an introduction for an episode that we recorded in 2018, we just realized. Um, (laughs) It never saw the light of day. And we've decided to reveal it to you all, to show show it and you the light of day. Yeah. Which is weird because, not to go prolong this, but this episode was special because it was about food. Mm-hmm. Which is our favorite subject. Literally. And it's the one thing that y'all never got to hear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I don't know why it never got edited. I think we recorded it at the very end of 2018. Yeah. And then early 2019, I moved to New York. Yes. And then that was the end of the podcast. So yeah. it's 2021 now. And for a few reasons, we've decided to get back into the podcast, uh-huh. relaunch it. And we'll get into those reasons in the official relaunch but before we do put out any new episodes that we record in 2021 we want to of course give you this food episode say hello yes because we've missed all of our listeners and close the chapter on that first stretch of podcast yeah can we call it season one and pretend season like one. it was intentional we meant to take a three-year break <laughs> when really heartbreak <laughs> of heartbreak. i have no idea what happened D- don't worry we've been bffs Mm-hmm. Non-stop. It's just this podcast got pushed under the rug. And, yeah. But now, hey, we've pulled it back out. Yeah. And when we come back, we'll tell you what we've been up to in these three years. So get ready, folks. Get ready. But in the meantime, here is our food episode from 2018. Bon appétit. This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hello. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Wow, I didn't know the Swedish chef was a guest co-host. Yes, because we're doing an episode about food, so the Swedish chef had to arrive. Well, thank you. I'm glad he came. No. Bye. He's <laughs> leaving. <laughs> that wasn't bad. You just show. sweet. Oh, God. Well, this is episode 17. Wow. Yeah. Stop, stop. We can't do that every time. No, like, I'm at a point now where I'm like... It's becoming less impressive, believe it or not. I'm like, hmm, it's only been 17. Only 17 every time you say that. Before it was like, oh my God, we've done six episodes. And I'm like, Trapper, smile while your eyes so dead. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Keep making podcasts. Bona. Yeah, well, anyway, um, this is a special episode because we're straying away from our normal format, which we've done before. In our, what, Alice Dunbar-Nelson mm-hmm. episode, we did a joint episode where yeah. we talked about New Orleans for Mardi Gras, but this time we don't have an author. We're kind of reinterpreting literary here, <laughs> I think. Oh, definitely. Because you took this off the rails. I was like, let's pick an author and do a joint episode about food. But then we both realized that food is so important, it doesn't need one specific person. Mm-hmm. It just needs our passion. Yeah. And then you decided, I'll let you announce this. I decided, and she's like, we need to find some texts to, you know, so we do have readings. I said, you know Mm -hmm. what? I want to read from a cookbook. I want to read the foreword and a recipe from a cookbook. Yeah. So that's what I've chosen to do. Yeah, and I was wine drunk then, as I am now, and I said, share trapper, whatever. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) I got got the slip under the radar because you have a problem (laughs) great 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 so this is episode 17 like i said and we're gonna talk all about food you're gonna read from a cookbook yes and i might slip in a few poems because i know you love them so much yeah why not okay so let's get into the episode great okay so like we did in our getting to know us episode i think we're gonna like follow that route this time okay because you mentioned just a second ago how our relationship was built on food and our love for it. So I want you to talk mm-hmm. about, because this blows my mind every time, and I think you've said it on the podcast before, how you started cooking when we met. Yeah. And, Basically. like, me and our friend, we were, like, guinea pigs. Yeah. I said that today <laughs> at lunch to It blew you. my mind. Well, you know, we've done 17 episodes, and we probably said 18 times Yeah. <laughs> that... We like to feed each other and stuff. <laughs> feed each other. You feed me. I fed you once and it was a disaster. Oh, come on. It was. But, yeah, you know, um, I thought about that this week preparing for the food episode of the podcast. Uh-huh. I thought to myself, you know, I have really used you over the years to so test funny. things, yeah. recipes. Yeah. Um, and I think it's mostly worked out. Are you kidding? 
Yeah, it has. And I, I have... can't. I couldn't believe that you were like new to cooking. Yeah. Because you you were instantly just like one of the best cooks that I know. Yeah, I never look. My mother was not a particularly good cook growing uh-huh. up. She didn't like savor the experience of cooking and serving yeah. food. Uh-huh. So when I went to college and had my first apartment. I a, had to master grocery shopping, which everybody has to, you know, uh-huh. at some point. <laughs> and not just like you can't just go into the grocery store and say, oh, this mustard special and like, you know, put it in your buggy <laughs> and, or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, mm, yeah. oh, this cheese. Like, you've got to go in with a game plan. Yeah, exactly. So it took me probably <laughs> six months to figure out how to grocery shop. And then um, I taught myself how to cook out of cookbooks. Uh-huh. And I think, like anything, a person has to, A, enjoy cooking to be good at it mm-hmm. and then b i think there's a little bit of a knack because so. you know a little bit of intuition and you develop that as you as you cook so uh-huh. i started kind of practicing and then by the time we met i was going to be really grand and ambitious yeah yeah and so when i we had our first dinner party i was ready to just roll it out hey, i wish i could remember what you made it was probably like lobster macaroni and cheese because you Maybe made that so. all the time and it was so good yeah that was great yeah but that's how it got started, uh-huh. using you as a guinea pig. And I, I, I wasn't doing it consciously, but now I realize I've been building a repertoire mm-hmm. for over the years. Yeah. And doing those recipes for you has helped me develop like a cooking style. So now I can say, you know what, this is what I have in my fridge, and I think I can make something good out yeah. of it. Yeah. No, no, no. Of- you even came to my house a few times in New Orleans, and you like literally were like, what's in the refrigerator and I remember you made this like French omelet once and I was like how did I have all of those ingredients it had like jalapenos and everything I was like this didn't come out of my kitchen I don't know what you did but it was wonderful like you were definitely artful with it and like your cooking style is very it's southern but it's French and it's gourmet and it's beautiful and you have such a patience in the kitchen that's my problem I think I'm good at cooking Asian food because I cook quick on high heat yeah. but you you will sit there and and let the oven preheat you'll you'll chop things slowly you'll really pay attention to what you do and I I love your passion and I appreciate it because so much of like southern Creole and Cajun cooking even is even though those are two wholly separate things and you ranted about that earlier today and I need you to do it on the podcast but like you know, it's like you put the red beans on in the morning on a Monday because that's laundry day and you let it like cook all day and then it's ready at night. And like gumbo is an undertaking. That's an all day thing too. It mm. tastes better the longer it sits and cooks and yeah. simmers. So it feels like something that like I appreciate deep inside my soul mm-hmm. that must you must have been born with too. Well, I appreciate that. that Thank patience. you for bragging on me. <laughs> Keep I really cooking can't for me, get enough please. of that. I'll do it. I'll do it all the time if you just keep cooking for me. Yeah. And I think the way you're talking about oftentimes good food kind of requires patience and steps and things mm-hmm. like that. I think that's true of writing. So that's how we're going to correlate the Absolutely. two art forms together. Uh-huh. I think just like writing and cooking are like you have to practice to become, to kind of find your style. That's very true. You know, and develop taste. Uh-huh. But also, they're both rewarding in that they're kind of nourishing for people. You're, you're giving somebody something to consume. Yeah, that's very true. It hopefully enriches them. Yeah, and food is such a sensory experience. I feel like writing about it in general is just such an easy thing to do. Yeah. Because it can be nourishing. It can be orgasmic. Like, I... Oh, sure. <laughs> food is always uh, stand-in for sex and, and writing. <laughs> And, you know, in preparation for tonight, we both said, let's have, like, a wicked dinner. Oh, God. That was... <laughs> that was we actually... always have a wicked dinner, too. But tonight was an excuse Child. to be wicked. <laughs> and not only that, like, I drove here, and then we drove to another town an hour away, so it's yeah. two hours of driving for me, <laughs> and we had this beautiful meal at this... What is, what's it called? This restaurant called Palmetto's... Palmetto's on the Bayou. On the Bayou. So it's on a bayou. Oh, yeah. In Slidell. And it it's just so Southern. They had, like, Cajun Charming. people dancing. Well, they could not have been Cajun, but they were doing Cajun dancing. Yeah. And, yeah, they had Cajun music, and it was really cute. So we gorged ourselves there, and then we came home, basically. We went to the grocery store. Yeah. And then we came home, and you started preparing what you made. So please, walk us through your menu. Oh, sure. Because it, it is artful. Well... I decided to make party foods. Normally, I, you know, you can vouch for this. Mm-hmm. I like to approach a meal 
in balanced terms. Yes. So you have to have something green. I don't care who's mama you have. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I don't care who your mama is. You gotta have something green. You gotta have, you know, I like. I don't like to just serve like potatoes and a roasted piece of meat. Oh know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But tonight I was like, you know what? We're doing a food episode. I want to make hors d'oeuvre, and so I did, mm-hmm. and I prepared everything in advance because and you know how it, it is. It still tasted so fresh. I made mushroom anchovy and goat cheese can- cheese canapé. And didn't tell me about the anchovy <laughs> I until I see. bit into it. <laughs> I wanted to see if you'd eat them. <laughs> I was like, why do these mushrooms taste like the sea? And you're like, oh, do you taste the anchovies? And I'm like, who in their right mind wouldn't taste an anchovy? <laughs> I know. I thought I could just kind of slide it past, but you liked it. <laughs> it was delicious. So, I ate seven. So those worked pretty well. And I like the idea of a canapé because it's fun to watch the different shapes puff pastry can make mm-hmm. yeah so that was cute that was fun the thing about you is like you'll make those and they'll actually rise and if i did the same thing you'll just <laughs> not up. but okay <laughs> well and then i made potato like herb and potato and bacon croquettes mm-hmm. that were stuffed with cheese yes you did that we had a pepper jelly dipping sauce yes. for. and if y'all haven't had pepper jelly i feel like that's definitely a southern thing yeah it is. You should find it because it sounds crazy, but it's delicious. It is wonderful because uh-huh. it's sweet and spicy, mm-hmm. but mellow. And you have like that savory, yes. oh, what do you call it? Croquette. Croquette. Mm, yes. And those were and those were special because I used in the potato mixture uh-huh. some Creole cream cheese. Yes. You and you were saying the difference between regular cream cheese and Creole cream cheese is that Creole cream cheese is more of a spread. Yeah, it's not a brick. Okay. Okay, but it's not like a cream cheese spread like you get in a little mm-hmm. plastic tub. Yeah. It's um, it's made with vegetable rennet. Mm-hmm. I, I think traditionally it's actually like made from like calves rennet, but these days it, that's not is the that case. Is that fat? Yes. Okay. It's like a special kind of mild fat. That's how they, rennet is how they make cheese set. Oh. So. Well. It's made with vegetable rennet. And um, it doesn't, the kind, every time I've used it, it's not like when you get a tub of cream cheese spread where it's all amalgamated and smooth. Yeah, yeah, no This has kind of got like a little bit of like whey or cream. Like a and, little texture to it. Yeah, and, okay. and you can definitely tell that there's some liquid and there's some solid. Uh-huh. And um, I mentioned the Creole cream cheese because it's kind of an endangered food. Which is terrifying. Yes, it used to be, I think it's A, Louisiana specific. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it was kind of commonly used in Louisiana cooking for a long time. But now I think only one, it's only made by like one producer. That's so sad. Yeah. Um, My and, grandma used to love that. And it's it's so versatile because you can spread it on your toast uh-huh. and with some honey or some sugar and it's good for breakfast. You yeah. can dip vegetables My in dad it. said they used to eat it like on crackers. Oh, yeah. Which is crazy. So I did. I used it because... You know, if you've got it, why not? Yeah, exactly. And it worked. It was delicious. Oh, God, yes, it worked. What else yes. did you put it in? The potato, and then you said you put it in something I else. also put it in um, the next thing I'm going to talk about, which oh, okay. I, I made mm-hmm. I made crawfish, boudin, pistolets. Mm-hmm. And Y'all. pistolets are another Louisiana-specific thing. A Cajun-specific thing, yes. because I grew up Creole, and I'd never had one. Yeah. Or heard of them, even, right. which is crazy. Pistolets, for anybody who doesn't know, are it's a special kind of roll. Um, and what you do is you make an itty bitty slit and you hollow the roll out and then you fill it. Normally, pistolets so are good. a shrimp and cheese kind of really yeah, I didn't know that. thing, okay. like you know, very creamy. Uh-huh. But I got creative because you and I love boudin, first of all. We do. We love crawfish boudin. But what you did to the boudin. Like, it it took it to another level. It's like when I eat boudin out anywhere, and I'm like, oh, that was really good, but, like, you tailored it to my yeah. exact palate. <laughs> I worked it. I said, you know what? If we're going to have boudin, we're going to have it jacked. Yes. Yes. You know, it's going to be... So good. So I added... Look, I added... You took it out the casings. I did. Okay. I cooked it, and I added some onion i added a little bit of garlic i added two habanero peppers oh good that's what made it so spicy that you grew yourself i did my habanero plant has been very productive this year crazy i did that i added some creole cream cheese and also added like seven ounces of extra sharp white cheddar yes so it was and a little bit of cream so i made that and i stuffed the pistolets and you bake them off the cajun ways to bake them off um some people will fry them but i'm like that's that's boring on grotesque. Yeah, no, that, that sounds <laughs> horrific. Exactly. I feel like the bread would just soak up all it the would. oil so it quickly. Would. Yeah, so you baked those that I came did. out perfectly hard on the outside and super soft on the inside. 
and then we ate about 8,200 calories. <laughs> At least. <laughs> I had maybe three glasses of wine. The chap was like, ready to podcast? <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to go take a nap. Yes. And I did. Yes. And I don't want us to forget that another reason you had to take a nap is because I made a rum cake. Oh, also, yeah, yeah, yeah. As well. That's probably what did it. I had to have been. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so I made that, and it was like a Caribbean style. It wasn't like, you know, Italian. Yeah. Or, I know the French do a baba au rum. I didn't even know Italians or French people did that. Yeah. That's crazy. So this was a Jamaican style. Well, yeah, it was super moist, dense, but in a good way, and tasted of rum. Yes. Pure rum. So that was our menu. I wanted to make sure that A, it was all carbs. Uh-huh. And extra fat. Yeah, fried. Fried and decadent. Yeah, and then put me in a coma. Exactly. That was it. Yeah. That was the theme yeah. of the meal. So um, it made me want to throw a cocktail party. Which, you, yeah, you said One you day would we do. will. One day. You're the person that's like, yes, we'll throw a cocktail party after I build a house. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so I'll put it in my calendar for 2020. <laughs> That'll be a great... Patience is a virtue. <laughs> but that is that was the thing. And, you know, the best part about having you as a friend is you're adventurous in terms of what you'll eat. Uh-huh. B, you... As a cook, I don't know, I can't talk for everybody, but... Uh-huh. I like for people to be vocal about if they do or do not like something. Okay, yeah. And you're very, you don't hold back either way. Because I know, like, if I say that I don't like something that I actually don't like, when I tell you that I loved everything I ate Mm -hmm. tonight, you will believe me. Because you're like, okay, well, you didn't like when we poached those eggs. Right. When I say we, I mean you. (laughs) (laughs) But you loved, like, literally everything else you've ever cooked for me, you know? So. So I appreciate your veracity. Of course. Yes. So that. Talking about all of that, mm-hmm. okay, all of the food we had, that was delicious. I wish we could convey the taste and smell to everybody. We got, I mean, the excitement in our voices, I feel like. It's just like, okay, this is our 16-minute introduction about how passionate we yes. are about food. And I know that you have some things that you want to read. I do. So what is that book? So this is actually, it's called The Cotton Country Collection, oh, and gosh. it's actually a collection devised by the Junior League of Monroe, so the ladies of Monroe. And um, the reason I pulled this is because my mother, growing up, when I was growing up, like I said, she was not somebody who was super fond of cooking. Yeah. She wasn't an, an adventurous cook, but she always cooked from Junior League cookbooks. So the Cotton Country is one. Uh-huh. She also cooked from the Lafayette Junior League cookbook. In what Baton is a Junior Richard. League? The Junior League? Yeah. It's a ladies' charity organization. Oh, okay. And it's nationwide, maybe worldwide. And, um, I mean, it's it's for ladies, you know uh-huh. what I mean? It's not just, like, I would say it's not, like, just women who get together. It's yeah. like, you know. Okay. Um, so, it's, it's the recipes in here are, are often fun to read because mm-hmm. some of them are a little bit silly. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but they're good for a busy homemaker because it's a lot of stuff in here is like cream of this. I'll say a can of tomato yeah, soup. Pimento cheese bread, you know, like that's what it's kind of like. Oh, that's fun. So my mother always cooked from those kinds of things. Uh-huh. And, I, and honestly, uh, I'm not going to say New Orleans, but this is like what every woman I ever knew growing up, they had these on their shelves in the so kitchen. So it's like a Southern. Southern I think so. Thing. I've never heard of a junior league or seen those. Yeah. So, okay, yeah, I'll let you read your little excerpts from that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sister? Oh, God, don't call me sister. I don't mean it in a... I know, but you... Wait, did you I'm, call me sister I mean earlier? it... I, and see, when I say that, I, I mean it in a strictly sexual way. <laughs> I don't mean to encroach <laughs> on your... How do you say sister in a sexual way? Mm, sister. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop it now. <laughs> So I've chosen two readings. The first is actually the cookbook's foreword, and I chose that because it's the one piece of prose in the book. <laughs> yeah. And I've also chosen a recipe, but I'll start with the foreword. So, it reads, The word collection carries several meanings and connotations. To bring together into one body, to gather or exact from a number of persons or other sources, an accumulation gathered for study or comparison. The Cotton Country Collection is all these things, and more, in that each recipe represents the finest of its kind, and each kind is very fine indeed. From the earliest days, cooks of the Ochita River area were blessed with an endless supply and variety of raw materials. 
Even today, the designation Louisiana denotes the very best in shrimp, rice, oysters, sugarcane, pecans, strawberries, to name a few. In our cotton country, there were many influences of different peoples, nationalities, systems of law, and of culinary arts. From the earliest days, the Indians taught the settlers about the delicacies native to Louisiana. Creole ladies in New Orleans knew about French sauces. Their African cooks contributed new ideas and seasonings. The Spanish influence brought a hotter accent. A large number of émigrés who fled the French Revolution were followed in less than five years by the Anglo-Americans coming down the Mississippi from Kentucky after the Louisiana Purchase. And each of these made its own contribution to our cotton country ideas. Although influenced by the cosmopolitan atmosphere of New Orleans and the ever-changing activity of river traffic, the Ocheta area was primarily a rural culture. The plantations along the river and the bayous were almost completely self-sustained, raising their own food, making their own clothes, building their own homes from the materials in the forest. Plantation chatelaines and their cooks, using the unusually lavish gifts of nature and the ideas of many root sources, developed a style of cooking distinctive in its heritage and delicious in its culmination. Here then our cotton country collection, a medley of French sauces with Spanish spiciness and African seasonings, served up over the Indians' native corn or oysters or potatoes or wild turkey. To coin a phrase reflecting our varying influences, may y'all come to Bon Appetit. Signed, Marilyn Taylor. Well, I have a lot to say. I First of all... So. <laughs> I expected as much. <laughs> the cotton country. What exactly is that? Every time I hear cotton in the South, I think of slavery. Uh, right. I, I always do. And people, someone, not people, one dumbass person told me, what does <laughs> cotton even have to do with slavery? Why uh-huh. did you even bring that up? When I wrote my story, White in Deep uh, South Magazine. Okay. So ever since then, I've been like, shut the hell up about cotton. <laughs> How dare you conflate cotton in yeah, the, the street institution of slavery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that bugs me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what do you think cotton country is? Well, first of all, Louisiana is very special as a whole in terms of culture and heritage compared to the other 49 states. Mm-hmm. But Louisiana is broken up into several distinct regions in and of itself. Okay. I'm from the Florida parishes, okay. which are the parishes east of the Mississippi River and north of Lake Marpon Pontchartrain. You're from the greater New Orleans area, which is everything kind of technically like east of the Mississippi River and a little bit on the west, and then to the Gulf, okay. and, and then yeah. south to the Delta. So, like, you know, that's its own area. Then there's Acadiana, which we both know. Yes, yes. And cotton country is, to me, everything kind of north of Evangeline Parish. Okay. Up to Arkansas and between the Mississippi and, uh, what's that other river? Red River? I don't know. Maybe it's the Ocheta River. No, no, that's in Monroe. But anyway, it's the part of the state that, to me, is almost strictly, like, Anglo. You know what I mean? The part that I avoid. Right. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's the part that when you drive, I can't even ride through that part of the state because it's so rural. Really? And you know what I mean? Yeah, it's and you're just, not from like a huge city either. I'm not, but at least where I'm from, it's like there are forests and stuff. Oh, okay. I see there it's mean. just like... Cotton country. Cotton and sugar <laughs> and like the, literally a lot of those parishes, like their parish seat, meaning uh-huh. the, the town where the courthouse is, have yeah. like 500 people. Oh my gosh. So I'm not, it's not my favorite place to visit. I'm not from cotton country, but uh-huh. uh, I would say it definitely where you know the parts of the state we're from Mm -hmm. the plantation systems were more like especially in new orleans they were real they were creole plantation systems Mm -hmm. meaning strictly french and the part of the state that i come from had a similar system in you know prior to the civil war yeah but up there it was like i think there wasn't much distinction between that and like mississippi or alabama or stuff okay so um Talk a little bit about what you were saying, because, yeah, I mean, how can you say cotton country without, you know... Cringing a pers- deep yeah. down inside. Well, that was that's basically all. I just, I I wanted to know if it was, like, a distinct... I wanted to know if it was a distinctive region or just, like, an idea and a concept that all of Louisiana okay. is cotton country, because no. I'm like, no, I'm a part of Louisiana, and I don't believe no. in this cotton No, because you can't grow <laughs> cotton in the part of the state we live. That's it's true. too swampy. But I think the uh, in terms of geography, mm-hmm. 
uh, I think the state's broken into five regions, uh-huh. and I don't think that if you look at the map, they call it cotton country. I think it's called something else. And this is Monroe, which is up north. Yeah, Monroe yeah. is a stone's throw from Arkansas, Arkansas and a stone's throw from Memphis. Yeah. So, um, you know, in college, I remember there being people from Monroe and West Monroe, which I've just did air quotes what? for. I know. They're like, there's a difference. No, there's no, not. you're from Monroe. Um, <laughs> and they're very culturally different than us. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I think that the ladies who've done this book have called it Cotton Country in terms of, you know, referencing the the heritage there. Yeah. Um, I, at first, when you first started reading it, I was like, wow, they're, they're really talking about community. It had mm-hmm. this sweet flow to it yeah. about how, you know, all these different cultures and styles yeah. of cooking come together to create this cookbook and everything. But then it's like, it's obviously an old book. It is. Yeah, they said Indians, and I was like, you mean Native Americans? Like, mm-hmm. in my head, I was just correcting it. And then uh, when they were talking about Creole women um, with their French sauces and their African cooks, like, language, was <laughs> is a literary podcast, li- uh, like, language is so important. It is. And having someone, like, have ownership over these African cooks, I'm like, no, let them have their own thing. These Creole <laughs> women have their sauces. Let these African women have, you know, their jollof yeah. rice. F everybody. <laughs> so at first, I went from like, oh, this is so cute and everything, but I'm like, wow, this yeah. just seems really, like, grabby. Yeah, and this, too, speaks to uh, the language you're pointing out, like the Creole women, the French sauces, and the African cooks contributing, like, seasonings, you know, that's kind of mm-hmm. what they said. But um, I think it really speaks to, you know, as hard as the language is to hear. This book was first printed in 1972. The copy I have here... Oh, it's my, not that old. It's not. <laughs> but the copy I have in my hand here, my mother got as a part of her trousseau, like her, her at a bridal shower. Uh-huh. So it's from 1987 or 88. And um, even though that stuff's hard to read, it really does... Speak to some reality, too. You know, I think today, if they were printing this fresh, they would have the women would reevaluate their wording. Yeah. Because I don't think anybody wants to be harsh. But when they say they're African cooks. They can mean hired help. I completely yeah, understand. No, but that. what I'm saying is, I mean, and one thing is, we've got to admit that the contributions that people from Africa made to Louisiana cuisine, those were enslaved peoples. Yeah. Let's call it. Let's but call at a certain it, point, like, okay these people are here like give them some yes. agency be like no, they're I agree here with and that. they're cooking and they deserve to be a part of no, what's made today's cuisine what it is I totally agree yeah. I agree but in the same breath if we had read that and it had come across as like African women presenting these seasonings we would both have to say like what are y'all pretending y'all didn't have slaves exactly you know what I mean yeah, are so they really here that's right like, yeah, yeah. like if we were it, like these were not immigrants we're talking about yeah but so, there is a way to, to word it where it's like their contributions exactly yeah it, more than just like a passing sentence but that's an interesting thing to look at yeah. and be like okay and how that's kind of a tripwire and how you've got to balance it uh-huh. carefully yeah. and, and I don't know that I could write it correctly. I think, well, I mean, just put them on the same level as everyone else. Yeah. Everyone else got to just exist. But Instead like, of just being an African cook. They're African cook. <laughs> God, that stabbed me in the heart. I know it. I was like, no, someone has to have yes. noticed this. But on the same note, they do make a good point in that they list all the different cultures that contributed That's true. or have contributed to what we now know as Louisiana cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is superior to all other cuisines. That. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. Write me if you want to fight about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I like that, and uh, I think everything can be read as literature, whether you're talking about something really dry and academic or something that's totally literary, um, even to something like this, which is mm-hmm. just a foreword to a cookbook. I mean, look at everything we were able to talk about, and we had, we had, we could have yeah. dove even deeper, but yes. we didn't. And I told you when we first were talking about doing the food episode, and I wanted to do a cookbook. Uh-huh. Um, modern cookbooks, some of my favorites, are people who are really smart and creative. You know, I always talk about Ina Garden because her one of her cookbooks was the Bless first. Bless you, Ina Garden. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like when you read, she's so whip smart, really, and she always has several pages at the front of her cookbook saying, "This is what inspired me this go round, and this is what I hope people glean from it." Mm-hmm. And she's just, it, it it reads as entertainment. Really. Yeah, I mean, creating recipes takes a lot of creativity, mm-hmm. so it makes so much sense that many chefs and cooks are able to to write something yeah. beautiful about the food that they're so passionate yes. about. And, you know, this is maybe a stretch, but I'm going to go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, recipes are structured like poems uh-huh. in that they're lines. Ooh. And uh, I always loved the term found poetry. And I remember when I was in graduate school, 
I took I took one creative writing class, and the instructor always said like, "Oh, that's found poetry," um, meaning something that like I remember once I listed the names of the town along the Mississippi Gulf Coast, uh-huh. and he said that's so pretty it's like found poetry, meaning you didn't come up with it, but it's so lyrical and unexpected. It touched me as poetry yeah. does. So I'm you know I think a recipe can be found poetry, and that's why in conjunction to the foreword, I would like to read a, a small recipe. This is exciting. Okay, yeah. all right. Hopefully we can find some poetry in it. Yes. A recipe for roasted dove. Any number of doves, olive oil, curry powder, dry mustard, celery salt, garlic salt, salt, pepper, chicken broth made with stock base or bouillon cube, two tablespoons Worcestershire, juice of one orange, juice of one lemon. Roll each dove in enough olive oil to get them well greased. Sprinkle small amounts of curry powder, dry mustard, celery salt, garlic salt, salt, and pepper over each one. Put doves in a covered roaster or Dutch oven in a single layer with a small amount of chicken broth or water and cook one and a half hours in a 250 degree oven. Add Worcestershire sauce and juice of orange and lemon. Cook for 10 to 15 minutes longer uncovered or until tender and brown. By Mrs. T.A. Grant III. Wow. <laughs> my reaction every time. Oh no, but when, when you first finished that, I instantly was like, that was just a recipe, Trapper. I don't understand. But then I looked at it, and it made a lot more sense to me. First of all, because it's the first word that you can read, any number of doves is just poetic. Mm-hmm. There's so much freedom in that recipe. <laughs> like Throughout the whole thing, I feel like an idiot talking about this as if it's like, poetry no don't be foolish <laughs> okay, okay but it's like there's no measurements you know usually mm-hmm. recipe we're used to recipes that are like very like if you don't use one teaspoon of mustard powder then it's ruined yeah. but this gives you a lot of freedom to really like judge how it's gonna come out so i don't know that was my first thing tell me why you think this is poetic well first of all um i like the idea of dom- domesticity as art first uh-huh. of all because for a long time, women's lives have kind of been discounted as mundane. Mm-hmm. And, but there's artistry in everything uh, yeah. when it comes to cooking or keeping a house. And if I had the voice of Glenn Close reading that recipe, it probably would have sounded way more poetic. Especially yeah. with, you know, violins playing in the uh-huh. background. But um, what I like about it is there's, like you said, any number of doves. Mm-hmm. I think there's something almost chilling about reading, and chilling in a positive way, uh-huh. about reading uh, ingredient lists for recipes. Because, to me, that is what is the the sort of personality of the recipe. Yeah. Okay? You can imagine what it's going to taste like exactly. after, even before you read the instructions. And it also says a great deal about the cook. The, uh-huh. the person who has, this is her recipe, Mrs. Yeah. T.A. Grant III. Uh-huh. Okay? This is something that she has done so well and so often that like you say the only measurement is two tablespoons Worcestershire Mm -hmm. so what she's assuming is A you know you can distinguish how much of each you need for your palate and those of the people you're cooking for exactly and B she's she's assuming that you who are reading this cookbook are experienced enough to have a deft hand with these spices. That's true, seasoning. that you've tasted and used these spices before. That's interesting. Exactly. And then, you know, the first line of the actual recipe, roll each dove in enough olive oil to get them well greased. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? There's yeah. something almost like, it's very sing-songy uh-huh. and um, well greased. Mm-hmm. To me, that's just almost like saying any number of doves. Like, I think that's so special. And then, you know, I'm trying to think of this next part where... You know, you're cooking them at 250 degrees, so you're, like, stewing them, basically. Yeah. (laughs) And then uh, she's like, and then cook them for 10 to 15 minutes longer, uncovered, or until tender and brown. Uh Uh-huh. So, again, she's counting on your ability to tell these (laughs) things. Yeah, exactly. But what I think is really interesting, and this is true of all Junior League cookbooks, the lady contributors... um, like 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 Mrs. T. A. Grant the Third, but here are some other ones. Here are some other names. Mrs. Mike Harrington. Okay. Mm. Mrs. Jim Folk. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Ben Marshall. Mrs. Elmer Neal the uh Elmer Neal Junior. Mrs. Bob Kennedy. So what I think is so interesting is um they're they're no they're they're referring to themselves by their 
um, married names. Right. And, and not even just their married their names. Their husband's but names. It's like, what do they call it? Your uh, formal name. I don't even know. <laughs> you know that'd be like saying, um, like, Duchess of York or something, you know. Yeah. And that's so funny because you have, this is an achievement. You know, you have a recipe yeah. published in a cookbook mm -hmm. that your entire community is going to see, but you almost can't claim it in a way. But at the same time, you're like giving yourself some type of accreditation or something to be yeah. like, listen to me, I am a married woman and I keep a house. I have yeah. the missus, but you don't know what my actual name is. That's what I wanted to get your perspective on because I think it's, you know how one person can see one side and one person can see the other. When I read these things, I see these women as using their formal names as A, for prestige, mm -hmm. and B, for pride. Mm-hmm familial pride. Yeah, I think they were perfectly fine with that right. being in there like that. But I was kind of wondering if you were going to say like, uh, how oppressive or something. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, yeah. know. <laughs> I see both sides of it yeah. because I feel like if, if a Southern woman didn't want something to be how it was back in the day, mm -hmm. I, I believe that she would be like, print my name. Oh, she I think she would be judged yeah. heavily by all the other women, especially when she had a husband. Mm -hmm. But I, under, I understand both sides. Yeah. So I'm just like, if you want that, that's fine. If I ever sure. get something published... You know, like, I, I told you, I think, I'm keeping the pen name that I've stuck with so far, even if I get married, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. I don't know. I, it's a personal thing, I it guess. It is. And I think, um, I mean, I've read a lot of stuff recently about <sighs> people all tend to push back against things that they see as archaic, mm -hmm. and they push back in terms of saying, ah, it's so ignorant. Like, they don't give people the benefit of the doubt that, you know, and uh, a lot of girls... I'm 27, and a lot of girls I know my age who live around here, if they're sending something in the mail, like an invitation, they're going to put Mrs. John Doe. Really? Yeah, because to them, it's it's not about saying, I don't have an identity. It's about saying, I am, I am responsible for Mr. John Doe. Kind of like, it's not about saying, I've assumed his identity. It's about, I have stepped into... An important role of secretary, like mm -mm. no, not of secretary. Meaning, like I'm now able to. I don't know. It's a social thing too, because when you're able to send an invitation as Mrs. Such and Such to Mrs. So and So, it's kind of. I mean, this is an old-fashioned way of thinking, but here it's empowering because it's like I am able to really. I don't know how to put it. It's almost like stepping into the social sphere fully. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And. Um, and I mean, when you're talking to your friend, you're not like, oh, Mrs. Such and Such. It's, it's strictly like for things like if you're if you're doing like an invitation yeah. or something. And and most people I know, if they won a prize, they wouldn't want to be called Mrs. John Doe. They'd be willing to be like, this is Hillary, you know, yeah. or this is Kathy. <laughs> my name on my prize. Right. But, but I yeah. think that there's so much, um, it's complicated, like all things. Yeah. Meaning, does she really understand why she's getting pleasure from being called Mrs. Such and Such? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. But as a feminist myself, I have to respect those women who, who want to write that on their invitations, so. even though I personally wouldn't have, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah. I, I I still would want someone to open doors for me, mm -hmm. but I'm a hyper-feminist. That doesn't make me less of a feminist no, for really... liking a few archaic yeah. practices. Yeah. But... I personally am like, <laughs> I feel like just we women just need to be exposed to their options. I like agree. if you grew up in this small town and you want to stay home and, and be called Mrs. Mm -hmm. John Doe, that's perfectly fine. But know that also you could go live in the big city and be completely Hillary, whatever your whatever. last name is. I agree. <laughs> you know, that, that you've, really hit, you've really hit it on the head with anything. Your person has to be able to make the informed decision. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not enough to say like, Oh, I made the decision, but, like, not understanding fully what the alternative yeah. is. So, yeah, I hear you. I like that. Exactly. Um, but back to the recipe, perhaps, before <laughs> yes. we cut it off. I was going to say before we got into that conversation about names is I love how uh, we're talking about how this is a little bit poetic, how her name is signed at the bottom. Yes. Like an author's name because she authored a, what a, you know, the and correlation. <laughs> not with that particular recipe, but... Um, there are, they make little notes in some of these, and uh, I want to find the one I read earlier because I think you'd get a kick out of it. Uh, it's in the hors d'oeuvre section, and when I saw it, I said, this is like definitely an age gone by. Here we go. It's a recipe for Adrienne's Delight, and there's a little note under the title that says, great for an afternoon sherry party, exclamation point. Oh my god! And that's by Mrs. Thurman Smith. 
Uh, and so I just, and then there, there's another one that's for Southern fried vegetables. And she put something different, comma, but good. <laughs> so that's it's cute. like they're really making it personal and, and wonderful. And um, there's, when you, I know it seems weird. Nobody reads cookbooks for, well, actually, some people probably do. Read them I know, yeah, don't offend the one listener we have. I don't read these for pleasure. <laughs> but when I do uh, flip through a cookbook, I like cookbooks where there's joy uh-huh. and it just kind of emanates off the page. Yeah. And these junior league cookbooks tend to be very joyful. The artwork in here and the cover work, yeah. all done by ladies in the club. Oh, that's and cute. I'm going to tell you, I want you to look at this. Like the each section, there's a watercolor. Uh-huh. And look how beautiful. Oh, that is really cute. And these are just housewives who are contributing to this work. But yeah. um in some small way, it's like a preserved a, yeah. piece of like cultural history there. Yeah, that's cute. I like it. I wish the foreword were edited, but you know. Well, hey, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if uh, what the 2018 edition looks like. Right. It might, it's, it's, you know, probably like, hello, everyone. This is my mama's recipe book. <laughs> Here's some pop art. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, this one's great in terms of the Junior League cookbooks. My favorite one's the one from Lafayette. Really? Mm-hmm. It's got a really pretty cover, and the recipes are very special. Um, this one, if you go through, there's a lot of, like I say, like, Cream of mushroom soup mixed with Velveeta and, you know. Oh, cotton country. <laughs> Girl. I'm like, mm. But uh, the one from Lafayette, they do a real, like, that's like Cajun mamals really? recipes. That's They're what, that's up. the good stuff. You know, what's funny. We were talking about, like, Cajun country and then, like, you know, New Orleans is all creole But, like, it's almost like northern Louisiana is more south. It is. And southern. Soul food. And yeah, exactly. Than than the deep south agree. of Louisiana that we have grown up in and are mm-hmm. comfortable in. No, I totally agree. They Culturally, I mean, Louisiana, every corner of the state has been touched by the special stuff. But the northern part of the state, to me, is like a sister to the Delta of Mississippi and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, like Arkansas, lower Arkansas before you get there. Yeah. So yeah. I agree. You know, we're, we are not of that ilk <laughs> and this, I'll tell you why I got this cookbook is because you've actually come up to my hometown for this, to record this. Yeah, yeah. I guess we should say that. <laughs> and, um, I live kind of way out of the way yep. and just for convenience sake, we're meeting at my mother's home. Uh huh. Cause she's near, you know, you can find it easily. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, when I came today to kind of get everything ready for, for our meeting, I forgot, you forgot the my cookbooks books. and thank God my mother had hers yeah. in her sort <laughs> of interesting. buffet. Was, yeah. So it worked out fine. Um, because ultimately this is, this was so much fun to read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Going through and talk about, I didn't think that we would actually talk about race and feminism, Girl, but we always honey, managed. We couldn't read television instructions without <laughs> saying ah the racial implications and the gender issues oh my god I t- you know and i guess that's fine um i guess that's fine we wouldn't be <laughs> we wouldn't be people in their 20s if we weren't that's concerned true. with yeah a better uh, tomorrow yeah yeah well, but that's good yeah and um i guess before we move on to your thing just so and you can like shove this wherever you want in the podcast mm-hmm. when you edit but um what was your favorite thing your grandmother cooked when you were a little girl. Oh, gosh. If you could choose one thing that sticks out. I have to think about that. Okay, I had to literally pause the, <laughs> the podcast and think about it. But my grandma, on my dad's side, Mama Shirley, used to make okra, stewed okra. And I, I've told you about this before. Like, mm-hmm. okra is so hard to cook because it gets slimy, it gets gross. But she would, like, literally just make it into the stew. I don't know what she would put into it, but you just ate it over rice. And it was just delicious, and okra has those seeds in it that mm-hmm. I, I, it's so good. And she took that recipe to the grave because no one can make it, and yeah. it's so sad. But my dad, because I know you were going to ask yeah. me that next, my dad makes the best gumbo that I've ever tasted. Really? It's super spicy. The roux isn't too dark, so it doesn't taste like gravy, but it's not too light. He doesn't add okra. He doesn't add phyla even. It's just like great gumbo and you know how normally people will do like a seafood gumbo with like shrimp and crawfish and crab maybe or a sausage and a chicken gumbo yeah. he just throws it Hello. all in it is an actual <laughs> gumbo so it's like just just whole like half crabs like the little baby ones mm-hmm. it, like you just have to like dig to the bottom of the pot 
I get everything. And it's so spicy. My grandma on my mom's side always is like, oh, it's killing me. <laughs> and I'm like, be quiet. <laughs> More Tabasco. <laughs> I'm sorry, Crystal. Crystal is the best hot sauce. That's your opinion. Oh, let's fight about that after you tell me what your favorite <laughs> dish. I'm not going to ask, like, grandparents specific. Just who makes the best food and what's the best dish mm. that someone in your family has made? Yeah, see, that's really tough for me because I can remember specific things people made, but I'm trying to think of, like, my favorite thing that I wanted, that I've had to ask so that I could, like, Please retain make it. This, yeah. um, that's tough, Kate. <laughs> Okay, I thought about it. Um, this is special to me, and it's something that my great-grandmother Meads oh, made. Oh, my. So my mother's grandmother. Uh-huh. She just died last year. She was 97. Jeez. So she used to make, and she would make it special for me and my brother. Uh-huh. Um, she called it neckbone soup. So southern. I know. <laughs> and um, she would it was it was literally like a throw everything in the pot soup uh-huh it was like a tomato based soup but it had noodles and every vegetable you could think of and indeed neck bones uh-huh uh and turkey she, neck bones no 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 like beef oh okay neck bones uh-huh. so like they were they were you know it wasn't like putting in like a turkey neck yeah you know, there was flesh on it uh-huh. and uh it was so special because when we were little mama used to take us over there to see her and if she knew we were coming she would make it she'd make it and that's she'd have so it cute. and um oh my lord see that that's special to me in terms of like my favorite thing to eat taste taste wise probably not but i mean that's just very special that's cute and you said this when you said your mama took her recipe to the grave uh-huh it's so funny because food is or recipes are kind of like on some level kind of like oral tradition or family history mm-hmm. in that they're really folk art and you know unless that they're passed on consciously they can be lost mm-hmm. but in the same breath you always have the sensory memory so if you sat down one day and said I'm spending a month recreating my mom's okra stew if it kills me uh-huh. eventually you'd get it right yeah you know? exactly um because you got that ingrained kind of carved into your consciousness exactly. yeah no could you imagine maybe maybe other cuisines this is the same but for if I'm gonna sit down and like try and make a creole dish it's never like exactly one cup mm-hmm. of this my dad is like if he, he makes the best dirty rice too I just don't like dirty rice as much as I love gumbo but if I'm in the house he's like Kate come taste this and I have to like come and try every time yeah. and that's just like the what the gizzards and the livers yes. that he just like yes. grinds yes. up into seasons so I'm just sitting there eating organ meat like it needs more crystal it needs more cayenne add less you know whatever and I'm just like oh my god so like writing that down would never work so you're right it has to be like an oral tradition it has to be you sitting there with your daddy telling you you can add a few shakes of that but taste it and see and then he'll be like okay this is what you wanted to taste like taste it so yeah doing that a few times like Mm -hmm. i've had three gumbo sessions and i'm like let's do one more time so i can get get it in my head yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's right because on my mom's side when my grandpa died they were like who's gonna make the gumbo like, that was a thing. Yeah. So, like, my Auntie Charlene had to, like, step up and she makes the gumbo now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and I want to say this, too. Uh, Louisiana's got a fine tradition of men cooking in the home. Oh, yeah. That's, that goes all the way back, you know. It's, <laughs> Which I love. It, you know, we have a lot of Mrs. T.A. Grant thirds and stuff, but uh, I don't know a single family that's father does not have a special thing he makes and, and makes it at least once a week. Well, think of all the things, too, in our culture that, like, a, you wouldn't really imagine a, a woman making even though women are perfectly capable uh-huh. but like crawfish boils and I don't ever think of a lady doing I've that I've never seen a woman do that <laughs> yeah. like I, I, she could absolutely do it sure. but I just see a whole bunch of men in my head around a boiling Great. giant yeah. pot of crawfish um, what else in my in my family like you were talking about your dad and Papa kind of did the gumbo and your aunt took it over uh-huh. uh, around here I don't know any women who do jambalaya it's always men really because mm-hmm. it's always a big pot outside exactly. isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that's true you know I find that anything I'm, I'm not trying to be like oh you know but a lot around here a lot of times like things that are special meaning the things that take a long time it's always like the daddy or the papa that's kind of like alright I'm making sauce pecan or <laughs> oh my gosh I'm making you know whatever yeah and, uh, but like when mama cooks it's like nourishing it's everyday food it's, it is that's it's like, what my mom my mom made great shepherd's pie mm-hmm. that's not southern but no. it was it was good for a Wednesday night the best thing my mama 
has ever made, and it's uh-huh. my brother's and my favorite thing, is she would make pot stickers. Really? Yes. That's so random. I, I tell you. So when you say it's not Southern, I'm like, yeah, I mean. We don't just eat. Uh-uh. Etouffee. No. Those are special things. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Like pistolets. I mean, oh, that that's something wonderful. you got to do like once every six months or you'll kill or yourself. Or once every 27 years because <laughs> I never had it until today. Yeah, yeah. You, real, you will kill yourself very quickly. Um, <laughs> well, this was good. I had a poem, but we're like almost at an hour now. Really? So I think that what I'm going to do especially since we talk so much about Southern food, I'm going to read the Southern one that I had, okay. but we don't have to discuss it. You can maybe let that be the end. The end no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's like, I know I'm going to read a poem. It's a beautiful Southern poem about just our culture and our relationship with food uh, down here. I'm really pleased we did this episode. It's a fine departure from the norm. I say that every time we do something different. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad we did because um, I think it's easy to define literature as one thing when really any text can be seen as literary mm-hmm. honestly even visual media i think can even be seen as oh definitely and i wish i maybe we can take a picture or like scan a copy of that poem that you read so that people can see how it was formatted the recipe yeah because when you read it out loud i was like that's not poetic well and then i looked at the page and i was like this is beautiful i'd love to do that <laughs> yeah so we'll do that we'll include that in notes but i'm gonna go ahead and read this poem and then that'll be it well thank you for indulging me in this special episode <laughs> this is a great idea i'm so happy you had it because i would have never thought to read out of a cookbook <laughs> you maniac <laughs> you're welcome darling <laughs> going home new orleans by cheryl st germain for my grandmother Teresa frank Some slow evenings when the light hangs late and stubborn in the sky, gives itself up to darkness slowly and deliberately. Slow cloud after slow cloud, slowness enters me like something familiar, and it feels like going home. It's all there in the disappearing light, all the evenings of slow sky and slow loving, slow boats on sluggish bayous, the thick middle trees with the slow-sounding names, oak, mimosa, pecan, magnolia, the slow tree sap that sticks in your hair when you lie with the trees, and the maple syrup and pancakes and grits, the butter melting slowly into and down the sides like sweat between breasts of slow-eyed strippers, and the slow-throated blues that floats over the city like fog, and the weeping, the willows, the cut onions, the cayenne, the slow-cooking beans with marrow-thick gravy, and all the mint juleps drunk so slowly on all the slow southern porches, the bourbon and sugar and mint going down warm and brown, syrup and slow, and all the ice cubes melting and all the iced teas, all the slow-faced people sitting in all the slowly rocking rockers, and the crabs and the shrimp and crawfish, the hard shells slowly and deliberately and lovingly removed, the delicate flesh slowly sucked out of heads and legs and tails, and the slow lips that eat and drink and love and speak, that slow, luxurious language savoring each word like a long-missed lover, and the slow-moving nuns, the black habits dragging the swollen ground, and the slow river that cradles it all, and the chicory coffee that cuts through it all, slow boiled and black as dirt, and the slow dreams, and the slow healing wounds, and the slow smoke of it all, slipping out, ballooning into the sky, slow, deliberate, and magnificent. That was lush and dreamy and rich, and I think that was the perfect way to end this episode. Me too. I think it says everything that needs to be said about New Orleans. And this has been episode 17 of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kinchin. And thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more. Write a little better. And and explore the human condition condition together. Yes.